Welcome back to American Exception. This is part two of our tribute slash fundraising campaign for Professor Peter Dale Scott. At, at the age of 95, Peter has completed two final books for publication after surviving a life-threatening bout of COVID followed by triple pneumonia. He has medical bills at this point and some large expenses stemming from the use of copyrighted material that he is including in his upcoming book on the Polish poet Milos, with whom Peter collaborated many years ago. To help Peter, our friend Freeman Ng, Peter's former student, set up a GoFundMe campaign, which we have linked to in the show description and on the screen if you are watching the video version of this episode. Peter Dale Scott is a historian and political theorist. He is the founder of Parapolitics, which as you'll hear shortly, he feels ambivalently about. He is also the founder of The Deep Politics Approach and the author of many books, including The War Conspiracy, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Drugs, Oil, and War, The Road to 9-11, American War Machine, and The American Deep State. In part one of this tribute, we heard from David Talbot, James Galbraith, Daniel Ellsberg, Joshua Oppenheimer, John Kariaku, Liz Franchek, and Brace Belden. I urge you to listen to part one if you missed it. We ended the episode right after hearing from Noah Colwin of Blowback. So that is where Ben Howard and I pick up. Blowback is great. They do their research. They have great production skills all around. Ben, you know what else are always fantastically produced? Aaron, you wouldn't be talking about the films of Oliver Stone, would you? Yes. Yes, I would. Oliver Stone does not need much of an introduction. So for our purposes, I will just remind everyone that he is the director of Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, Nixon, W, The Untold History of the United States, and JFK Destiny Betrayed, the four-hour cut of the JFK documentary that he did with Jim Diogenio. Oliver Stone's films have won Academy Awards in just about every possible category, including Best Director and Best Picture. For my money, he is America's greatest living filmmaker. Oliver Stone, thank you for joining us here. I have a preface for this question, uh, if you can bear with me. I, I think it'll be worth it. Uh, back in the early 1990s, you endorsed Peter Dell Scott's book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK. Uh, Peter argues in this book that a true understanding of the Kennedy assassination will lead not to a few bad people, but to the institutional and parapolitical arrangements which constitute the way we are systematically governed. Now, your film, Nixon, which is a masterpiece in my estimation, it came out a few years later, and one of the recurring symbolic elements in the film is the beast. So Nixon and Helm mention this at different times, and it's invoked in different ways. There's a classic scene where a young college-age woman tells Nixon, you don't want the war. We don't want the war. The Vietnamese don't want the war. So why does it go on? And then she continues, you can't stop it, can you? Even if you wanted to, because it's not you. It's the system and the system won't let you stop it. Now, later on in the film, Nixon, just a few minutes later, Nixon tells his aide, she understands something it's taken me 25 years in politics to understand. The CIA, the mafia, the Wall Street bastards, the beast, a 19-year-old kid. She called it a wild animal. Now, this dark nexus of American imperial power 
the military industrial complex, the intelligence agencies, crime syndicates, Wall Street. What do you make of the overlap between these elements in your films and Peter's scholarship on parapolitics and deep politics? Is the beast essentially the deep state? Well, in metaphoric film terms, in which are vague, vaguer than uh, what Peter Dale Scott's writing is about, it, it is true to me because I've seen evidence of it in my life on the Vietnam War on. Uh, so, you know, but it's, it's a vague description, to be honest, because we can never pinpoint it. I don't know. I mean, when I include, you include the mafia, I'm not sure the mafia is, is still got meaning. I know there's a certain amount of corruption in the, in the world, and it, it, certainly in Teamsters and the unions. But where is the fine lines? Who's talking to who? I, I could not tell you, nor can I tell you that the Kennedy assassination was approved uh, at the highest levels of American business, because I don't know. But because I've hung out with some of those guys, as you as you may know, so I don't really have proof. And uh, it seems very arrogant of me to jump in and say, you know, hey, check out the Rockefeller Foundation or uh, check out because. But I do feel this, that Kennedy was a problem for sure. And in this matter, uh, some people like Chomsky don't agree, but, uh, and Jim Eugenia, with whom I worked a long time, we, we understand, but it's like an old way of thinking because you have to look at Kennedy's record and some of it has not come to light, except in the last few years. And we tried to bring that light to it in our latest update on the assassination, the JFK revisited uh, documentary from, from last year. Uh, which is worth looking at because it talks about his policies all over the world, in Indonesia, specifically in Africa with, with Congo, uh, in, uh, in Latin America with uh, Progress for Alliance for Progress, and how those things changed so abruptly. That's another indicator because when he died, Johnson cut, cut off all, most of these programs and the whole nature of business changed in the United States. Kennedy was an avatar in the sense that he said, we want to go, we're going to do a new way of business. And he, he held out his hand to so many African countries and Asian countries. He said, Indonesia specifically, he said, we don't want to do business in the old way. We don't, we know you're scared of uh, the Eisenhower Dulles uh, mentality. And there's a lot to be scared of because Dulles was actively working to, to uh, destabilize so many of these governments and, and killing people too. So these people are scared and America is scary. And I think innocent citizens in our country just don't understand how scary our country is. Kennedy understood that and he had a deeply compassionate viewpoint on these other countries. And he wanted to be a friend to the third world, which was astounding for the time because you have to live through those times to remember how, how establishment we were and how Wall Street oriented we were. And my father, of course, was on Wall Street. So I had some sense of it myself because I grew up in a Republican conservative family, uh, even my mother. And my father and I would argue voraciously after, after I came back from Vietnam. So, but I, I look at it, I, I look at all of this very subjectively and personally. I don't pretend to be a, either a historian or an essayist or anything like that like uh, Peter Kuznick is or Peter Dale Scott, both of whom I respect. 
uh, I never, I studied history only for untold history of the United States, which was made in 2000, came out in 2013, and which covered the 1898 to 2013 period. And here I, that's where I really went back to school and did my, uh, got my postgraduate degree. You realize I, my education was limited in the sense of I went to NYU film school and uh, I took, uh, I never really had a formal study of history. It's instinct. Well, I, I think that this, the, expressing some of these ideas in film or in poetry, in some ways, this can be done in a more satisfying way than can be done in history, because mystery and, and ambiguity are parts of these art forms. And history doesn't have a way of dealing with this when you don't know the you don't know everything that goes on. So this is, you know, that's, that's the only thing I can tell you is that I don't have. Uh, that's exactly it. And as a dramatist, that's what I do. Dramatists sometimes can hit the truth more than all these fact-oriented historians who drive you crazy. They broke my chops on the JFK assassination. And when you go deep into it, uh, I think you find that there's a lot more to be said for uh, the way we approached it than the way these guys desiccated to death. And Peter Dale Scott was not helpful. He never came out uh, in, in support of our film. I have to tell you that. Oh, I, I'm aware of the story, and I I know I remember I know why it's the the garrison thing. He he would have uh, he would have done it otherwise. He just there's this garrison issue with him. That's yeah, garrison uh, was it was a big point. It's an issue point, but I I would argue that garrison did more good than harm. I, I agree. Uh, that's what I think too. But I don't I don't bring that subject up too often because it's the yeah. one area that I disagree with him on. So. Um, in recent years, we've had the Epstein scandal and his so-called suicide, the bizarre rise and fall of Russiagate, and various other scandals, too numerous to mention, really. Uh, now we have Tucker Carlson on Fox talking about how the CIA was using Oswald in some way, and all the central intelligence directors have known this. More people, still a minority, but a, a growing one, are waking up to the reality of criminality in high places. People like you and Peter have been grappling with these issues for decades. It's a struggle that takes a psychic toll on a person. How do you fortify yourself to avoid apathy and find the will to keep on chasing the light, uh, if I can put it that way? Well, I think the answer to that is by, you have to refresh the well. You have to, if I was doing this uh, 20 full time, uh, I don't think I could do it because then I would be simply, not simply, but I would be politically only. I am a dramatist. The dramatist has to refresh his storytelling, refresh his soul by jumping around. I've done football movies. I've done financial movies. I've done uh, three crime movies. I've done uh, uh, war movies. Uh, I've done a movie about Central America. That's the way you refresh yourself. If I'd been, I, Peter Dale is a, is a uh, academic so he can stay in in one lane and he likes it i i assume as well noam chomsky but that limits to me that's a limitation too uh because i don't think chomsky can get out of his lane at times i think he has a deeply compassionate view of humanity but when he talks about uh, kennedy it, it it amazes me how obtuse he can be 
about uh, perhaps without having done new research, but that he resents Kennedy for being this rich young man who, who inherited his office. Then, well, let's take it any way we can. If I think sometimes the people who come from the more privileged classes can do more than the people who don't. So in Kennedy's case, you take what you get. You don't resent him for having a rich father and having a chode education and a Harvard education. So, you know, I, I, there's still a, and I felt it in the horrible writings of Alexander Coburn, who, again, was pissing all over Kennedy and these people, uh, you know, they're still around. And uh, it's not the way to think. It doesn't matter who your class or your gender or your race is. You just, what is your ideas? That's what matters to me. Well, I think that that's uh, a good point to end on. And uh, I myself have to grapple with a lot of this dark material, and it's hard to do all the time. I'm happy that there's happier stories in the world, like the Philadelphia Eagles, ah. that, uh, that can bring a little bit of uh, you know joy to, to life these days. So uh, with that in mind, I want to thank you very much for joining me, Oliver. It's always sure. great to talk to you. But you know what? The Eagles mugged through that mug were mugs, were thieves. They robbed that game. The first touchdown was not legal. And on top of it, they they went they went after the quarterback intentionally to to hurt him, and they did. Unfortunately, they ruined the game. Could have been a great game. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you, Oliver. Bye bye. He seemed pretty upset with uh, the Eagles' victory over the 49ers, Aaron. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, he he later said basically the Eagles were bandits like their fans sitting in that stadium with their green faces yelling and screaming like Attila the Hun. So <laughs> Oliver, he might get canceled again for making Philly feel unsafe and, and all that. What's really terrible about this is that Oliver wrote the screenplay for the original Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we've always considered him an ally of the barbarian community. But <laughs> now this, I mean, bringing up Attila the Hun, that's a low blow. Uh, my goodness. Yeah, that's, uh, there's a, I think there's a too much for us to unpack here right now. Maybe we'll save that for a later date. But I, I do want to ask, what was he talking about when he seemed a little, uh, I don't know how to put it, upset, excised about, about Peter and, and the film JFK? I know there was a little bit of, of commotion there back in the day. Well, that is a fascinating history, and uh, it speaks well of Oliver that he would still go on to endorse Peter's deep politics and the death of JFK, and he took the time to help uh, Peter uh, by contributing to this. What happened was, uh, I'm going to go, I, I thought about actually, hmm, maybe we should just cut that out of the whole thing rather than explain it, but I, I thought that, <laughs> I thought, no, this is actually good history, and that people would have an appreciation of both of these guys, and uh, it tells a an interesting part of history that is worth looking at. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell the story anyway. Peter, uh, when Oliver did JFK, he wanted to get people together to help him uh, with publicity and to speak about this, especially those with some scholarly authority on the subject who were critics of the official story. And Peter uh, kind of stands alone among the uh, people in academia in this area. So Oliver asked him if he would help him with this uh, to promote this film and go on the road and do publicity stuff for him. Peter declined, uh, which to me, I, I literally love that film. And I, I, I think that oh, that would have been so excellent to have been a part of that. But Peter declined. 
uh, because Peter has always had problems with the Garrison investigation and with Garrison himself. He, he thinks that there were some elements of the investigation that weren't on the up and up and that it was counterproductive. Um, I have a different take on this than Peter. It's one of the few areas that we disagree on, even though I do admit that the, it was kind of a disaster and it may have set the the justice back. I also think it was probably overdetermined that they were not going to get justice in that case. As you see with RFK being killed, if they can kill RFK, they can squash a court case. But uh, Peter declined to do that. But he did at, around that time. He actually, you know, a little bit after, maybe a couple of years after, he uh, had a debate with Gerald Posner, uh, who wrote Case Closed, which was sort of in response to Oliver Stone's JFK. And Peter was perhaps drugged or something at that debate because he said, as in the middle of it, he began to feel very, very strange. Uh, and he thinks that they may have dosed him with something, but that because he had had some, you know, he was at Berkeley and he had some experience with such things, uh, he was able to keep his composure and uh, do a decent <laughs> job in the debate, which I wish there was a recording of the debate. I've seen a transcript of it years ago, I believe, but I would love to hear a sort of a stoned or stripping Peter Dale Scott trying to talk about, you know, um, the fair play for Cuba committee and other related topics. That would have been very cool. Um, but I just, that's the history and uh, that's what Oliver was alluding to. And uh, I think we got to look at it. So props to Oliver for still coming on here and uh, being a part of this. I think it's really great. You can't have, uh, they're on the same side in many respects, but they, they mm. Peter Dell Scott and Oliver Stone as, as individuals uh, could not be more different. It's really a study in contrast. Yeah. Uh, but now it is time to hear from our uh, our last guest. Um, so this is none other than Peter Dale Scott himself. Peter Dale Scott, it is wonderful to be back with you again. Yes, it's been too long. It's good to see your face again. Now, you have been working in these areas for many decades. And you started off, uh, well, let, let's say you, you began to refine normal understandings of, of the, the, these pheno political phenomena under the rubric of parapolitics. Uh, you, and this is a term that you've become associated with, but you've backed away a little bit from this over the years and moved on to deep politics and in other directions. Uh, why did you back away? How did you come to parapolitics as a framework? And then how, why did you back away from it uh, gradually over the years? Well, first of all, I have to recall what I meant by parapolitics, which was uh, really covert politics, where you, uh, you, you, you do something, but you conceal the fact that it's you that's doing it. And in short, covert operations as conducted by the CIA. And my book was mostly about Vietnam, and I decided that the role of the CIA had been huge in getting us into that war by what they did in Laos. So I, it's, then I, I had less to say. That was in my first time, the war conspiracy in the first edition in the 1970s. But I didn't really back away from it. It's just that I became interested in politics at a deeper level than what the CIA was doing in covert politics. And that you know, the question is, how come the CIA is free to do all this and nobody objects and nobody even is allowed to know what they're doing? 
although they're doing things that affect our foreign policy perhaps more profoundly than what the State Department does. And we end up uh, overthrowing democracies and putting in terrible, terrible uh, totalitarian uh, bullies in Indonesia. We go for the best countries, like Chile was perhaps the most, the best democracy in Latin America, and we destroyed it and put in Pinochet. Um, and nobody does anything about it. So that took me not away from parapolitics, but I would say I went through parapolitics and came to the problems of deep politics, which in, engage all of our political system and indeed aspects of our society outside our overt political system. So that got me talking about deep politics and uh, I have been quite comfortable talking about that. And, you know, I, I know through that I started talking about deep events like the Kennedy assassination and 9-11. Uh, I, I started in the 90s and I said there are events which happen which are treated as committed by marginal people like... Uh, uh, disgruntled Marines like Oswald or a few crazy Arabs like in 9-11. But in fact, uh, we don't, uh, the truth of what really happened is very energetically concealed by the, the government. And, uh, I, I, and I dared to say in the 90s that uh, they happen regularly and we should see one in a decade or so, and then we had 9-11. And I, I want to get this in, though it's not part of the question you asked. And then I refined my concept, and I said that recurringly, they involve the procedures that have been set up for continuity of government, which was originally how to respond to an, an atomic attack which decapitates Washington but created a kind of second apparatus of government behind the public apparatus of government. And I was bold enough to say that we will have more, if we have more deep events, maybe they will involve COG, continuity of government. And I'm still waiting for someone to say in the current discussions about January 6, 2021, that that was a day in which COG was involved. And it's a tribute to the secrecy and importance of COG that it has been mentioned, but it's not being mentioned in the current debate when we're supposed to be focusing on it. So anyway, that's so it's a one process. I started with the parapolitics, which is a, a terrible blot on this, what this country status in the world that took me to deep politics, which was the beginning of a deeper understanding of how we could have parapolitics uh, sanctioned the way it is. And, uh, well, anyway, I've kept borrowing now to a deeper level still than that. So when you, as I, in looking over your work, you were... You were already writing, I, I believe, about deep politics, even when you were using the terms, when you were talking about parapolitics, you were still getting into deeper 
sort of systemic and sociological issues. I'm thinking, for example, the piece that they intercepted from on its way to Ramparts. You're you're talking about old money and the aristocracy of uh, you know corporate wealth in America, right. and that goes beyond. And you're sort of so you're pointing to forces that are manipulating the the covert elements yes. of of the state, yes. or even creating their own. Um, you know, parastates is what they could call them now to uh, to conduct policy in a way that's totally undemocratic and unaccountable to anyone. So you were already working. You had already gone beyond parapolitics, I, I would say, before you yes. officially em- I think the embraced the other terms. I mentioned, yes. The book in which I mentioned parapolitics uh, went on beyond for example, that the last chapter where I was talking about the CIA and drugs, which I believe was the first book, uh, the first serious book, there were a couple of crazy books, but the first serious book to tackle what is a very major problem, and which really gets outside the realm of politics into, uh, you know, the, uh, the underpinnings of the global uh, economic establishment, the, the, the dark side of the global economic establishment. Yeah, yes, it's, uh, once you get started looking deeper, you get into larger and larger horizons of things to look at. Did you become, it's one thing to be dismayed about these political and historical issues that you might identify but but are powerless to change. Did it bother you when your own research was or, or approach uh, would get adopted by people who were not as judicious or serious and 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 were more basically exhibiting the what C. Wright Mills or even Popper would call like the conspiracy theory view of history? Um, did that? Did it has that been something you've had to, you know, manage and and deal with, uh, because your work is very meticulous and you often uh, go to great, great pains to say what you can suspect, what you can believe, what what is confirmed, what is rumored, and so on. And then other people in this vein are are less careful, and maybe it discredits some of some research into these subjects. Uh, how have you? How has this impacted your? Your approach uh, over 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 time. Do you just shrug it off, or has it? uh, Have you worked to just go back to the, go back and make you know clear arguments, or how have you handled this aspect of it? Because I I find sometimes when I when I write or say something, and then immediately someone just chimes in and and tries to say that oh it's you know it's the Jews or something. I mean these things are these things are frustrating. So how do you how have you handled this? They, people use my research to come up with a Jewish conspiracy for the Kennedy assassination, yes. That doesn't worry me so much as the fact that I think that I had some helpful things to say about the deep state. And that when Wikipedia entered a deep state item originally, I was part of it. But I do very much regret that the term deep state has been sort of kidnapped and kept used for to define something quite different by the conservative right and by Trump himself 
Um, and that, I think, is a shame because I think we should be having discussions about what the deep state is, but I can't use the term deep state myself now because it's been so poisoned by the way that other people have abused it. Um, and that I regret, but, you know, you, you have to... I mean, my dialectical view of uh, how uh, culture works is that if you come up with a good idea, it's people. People. There are people who don't like good ideas, and will try to uh, deflect them. So uh, I regret that, but I'm not surprised and can't really complain. That's just what life is. Right. Yeah. There's uh, Francis Fukuyama. Uh, we uh, did a multi-part blog series on the deep state, and uh, at least in the first part, he judiciously avoids your work or Ola Tanander's work. It's, it's very, it's, it's very silly. I'm going to go back and look at the rest of it uh, sometime in the near future. I hope maybe with Ben Norton and we'll look at it together and do a, do something on it. But um, it is, uh, they don't want to actually engage with the critique. They would rather engage with a straw man and then destroy that straw man because it's yes. hard to argue for our democracy on its merits as it's explained in textbooks. It's just very difficult. I want to give you the chance to talk about this new book that you've been working on. Uh, why don't you tell us the title and uh, why you wrote it, and maybe how this, uh, how it it's, it it reflects some uh, deep sort of summaries of your of your work and thinking over over the years, and it kind of transcends the political and historical, maybe even the po the the poetic and and offers something different. Uh, can you explain your, can you talk about your new book a little bit? Yeah, well, first of all, I, 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 before I for, forget, I will give you the title. Uh, by the way, the book is, uh, I have a contract for it. I am working on the, revising the final text and it, hopefully it'll be out in the fall. The title is Enmindment, A History, Colon, a post-secular poem in prose. And when I come out with that huge mouthful, people usually say, well, what's it about? <laughs> and my honest answer is it's about everything. <laughs> and it's very, I did an abstract, I have. I called them up today, they're, they're no help. Uh, I did two abstracts, one when the book was called Minding, and then the other when the book was called Moreness. And the two abstracts have not very much in common, really. Well, they do have a lot in common, but their lead paragraphs are startlingly different. But I was about to bring it up in response to what you had just said, the feeling of helplessness when you see how big the political problems are and uh, you feel that what, what on earth could you do that would make them go a different way. Like right now, we're drifting into a nuclear war over Ukraine. It gets uh, more and more dangerous as the weeks go by. But I don't even try now. I have no illusion that, that I could do anything. I would say that uh, it, what I wrote this book, um, and I wrote another book in between, which will be out in March. Uh, about Czesław Miłosz, 
who was a Pole who had to deal with the problem that uh, this, this, uh, Russia under Stalin had taken over his country, and uh, he couldn't fight it on a political level, but he did fight it, and he came up with a kind of uh, alternative uh, cultural home for people who were not comfortable living under a Stalinist uh, regime. And uh, he called what he was doing an unpolitical form of politics. And I've written a whole book about this because I think that was the right strategy. He would not have got anywhere on the political level, but he uh, worked on the cultural level and that was successful. And then in my own book, uh, The um, Road to 9-11, I quote uh, John Adams talking about the American Revolution, where he essentially makes the same point. He says the American Revolution wasn't the war. The war was just the, the final stages of it. The revolution was 20 years of getting people to accept that there was the, the British system of government was not working for America, and that was a, a, a victory on the cultural level. And now, and it, it took me two years, or at least three years, to get my Newell's book published, and then into them, I just started what was originally an article, and then it grew and grew, and it's now a, an even bigger book than the English book, um, in which uh, I'm seeing that if you, just as if you dig through the parapolitics, you come to the problems in deep politics, but if you continue to dig, you see that we can't solve the deep political problems politically because they are grounded in something that is fundamentally sick about our culture is not fatally sick. I don't want to blow everything up. Our, on the contrary, I'm saying we have to understand our, what our culture is better and go back to its roots and correct certain deviations that have crept in, but not just in, you know, under, um, uh, in the 21st century or something. No, this is, these are problems that have been developing for a couple of centuries. And uh, it's going to be very hard for me in a 20-minute broadcast to, uh, to give you the core of the book, but that um, I, I, uh, I guess part of it is I, I, I'm, I'm even writing about the human brain in the book and how it has two hemispheres, uh, a left hemisphere, which where you have the... Uh, certain vital nodes, lobes, that deal with, uh, with speech and is essentially the rational sphere. And then we have another, the, 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 left, the, uh, the right brain governs the left hand, which is usually, for most people, well, it's just not really connected to being right-handed, left-handed, but it's the part of the brain that doesn't express itself through speech primarily. And is so I would say if you, you have one hemisphere that is rational and you have the other hemisphere that is very important 
some people would say more important than the rational hemisphere, but uh, you can only define it by saying it's everything else, you know, mystery, magic. Uh, when uh, Weber was talking about the problems of our current society, which he saw on a social, he's a sociologist, and he said uh, that uh, modernism was an era of disenchantment. Well, that was very accurate. And he said it because he felt we have to re-enchant. He wasn't just going to let it go. And he was looking to intellectuals to re-enchant. Well, that is kind of absurd. And as far as we're all intellectuals and using our intellect, that is our left hemisphere. But if you re-enchant, we're going to have to do something radically different. And what I do say in the book is that we have to go back, look at the whole of our culture, which I think it contains the answer to this problem, and that parts of it, particularly the Dark Ages, which we think of as being dark in the sense that it was a, a disaster, we have to re-appraise uh, what happened in the Dark Ages and see that some very healthy things happened to correct the rationality of Rome, and that Rome collapsed internally because of its defects and not just externally but because of barbarians, that on the contrary, barbarians were kind of a welcome thing that uh, they came, and one of the things they did, for example, was abolish gladiatorial games where people went for entertainment to see people kill each other. That was something that could only have happened in a city, and the barbarians came in with their simpler human motives and put an end to it. Well, it needed to have an end put to it, and that's just one little glimpse of if we could look at the Dark Ages, we can see that good things were happening, which needed to happen at the expense of rationality, which needed to come back, and eventually, roughly in the Renaissance, was back in the saddle again. So uh, the real question of how to solve these problems is to balance these two aspects in ourselves, the rational and the irrational, and come to a working formula. And I hope we can do it without having a nuclear war, but history tells us it takes big disruptions to make significant changes here. And if there is a nuclear war, that, that will be, the, I think, the disruption that will lead to need, and will be very painful, of course, horrible. I hope it doesn't happen. Be it for the people who live through it, awful. But uh, in the end, it may lead to some kind of needed recalibration of our culture. Yeah, I guess the, the main sticking point there is that given the doomsday machines that the U.S. and Russia have established, it's, um, the trick would be a nuclear war that would not be omnicidal. So this is where this is why I think most most of us are very much rooting for uh, an off ramp to this. It's it's really oh yeah, me too. Believe me, me too. But my best friend Dan Ellsberg, who knows more about nuclear 
capabilities in anyone else that I can think of, uh, he feels that it would be disastrous and, you could say in a way, suicidal. I mean, we're killing our own environment if it happens. He doesn't think it will kill everything or everybody. He thinks that particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, there will be areas that will be terribly impacted, but not wiped out. And uh, we just have to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's okay, so we can have a nuclear war. I'm just trying to say that uh, utter pessimism is not an appropriate response to the very real crisis that we're in right now. Yes, I, I feel like this is, been generated in a particular way and it's uh it, it's horrendous when you look back at it and you look at how c Wright mills was writing about the causes of world war three and he was saying the causes of world war three are essentially the preparation for world war three and he wrote that i think in 1960 i mean and he was so dead on about it and it was just oh, dumb yeah. luck that it didn't come to pass with and the cuban missile crisis Exactly. Uh, it wasn't all that premature because right after his book was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was so prophetic. And yet everything that he's saying in that book is he, he has a number of measures that he says the, the, the U.S. could take with all of its power and technological, uh, you know, advances that it's made. But, but the U.S. did not go to this route. It was it's if you go back and look at it at that book. He not only calls, call, basically identifies how we're headed towards doomsday, and for, and it, which does go just about like yeah. he says it, except they avoid it at the end. But he also has these. He recommends policies that, if you look at them, they are similar to steps that Kennedy was taking in different directions. And and he wasn't going all in on this, but it's it's there were there was an ele, there was an element of in the U.S. establishment for a time that wanted to move in a yes. different direction and they vis they even though kennedy saved everyone kennedy and khrushchev and others other key figures saved everyone from dying in a nuclear war they get rid of kennedy and and we step back from those ideas and as a i see that as being connected to why we're in the position that we are in because in we the the the, the regime whatever you want to call it it basically eliminated all of those pro pro democracy, pro human elements in the political establishment, and they were so successful at it that now we're about we're we're at that we're on the brink of you know uh, doomsday <laughs> because yeah, of this well, decades later. It, it does sum up the thing, as you say. The Kennedy saw the steps that could be taken, so he uh, started to take those steps, and what happens? He gets killed. And his brother then uh, is persuaded to get into politics. First of all, he absolutely didn't want to. I think he had a foreboding of how dangerous it was. But he got into politics, and he was definitely <coughs> going to get us out of Vietnam. He was going to do all the right things. So he gets killed. And, and uh, I skipped one because Martin Luther King was creating a mass movement behind an alternate way of conducting politics, and he was killed. That tells us there's something profoundly wrong. 
And if I agree with you about uh, your praise of uh, C. Wright Mills, but I would say that C. Wright Mills sees the question, but he doesn't really offer the answer because the answers he offers are the ones which, if you offered them, you got killed for. So you had to go to a deeper level, and that would be my justification. I, I, I'm so happy that you um, are interested in my Enlightenment book because I was frightened that I might lose my political friends, and I, I think I may. There may be some people I won't name names who I've been very close to who think that I've veered away from what's really uh, important. I, I believe that we have to go to a deeper examination of our entire culture and solve things on a cultural level. And I believe also <clears throat> that when you get into the history of culture, and cultural development, cultural evolution, which I have a word for, ethogeny, but I don't dare use it because nobody will understand it. But uh, the history of culture, I think, is our true history. And I think that the history of our politics, which is what people think is history, is really the history of the kind of uh, the, the, the surface emanations of what is our true history, which is the fact that human beings have, in fact, evolved both physically a little bit, because we're taller than we used to be, but also mentally, which is harder to see. But if we start looking at the history of culture, we see a, a steady pattern of evolution, which is dialectical, so it doesn't look like easy progress, because uh, every time you're making progress on the what I'd call the the yang side, the rational side, you're 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 forgetting the inside, and yin and yang go back and forth. Right now, we're so deeply into the yang side that we're due for a kind of shot of yin, and I hope it could be done non-violently. And that's another thing, that there's a very, very slow evolution in our cultures uh, towards more to the effectiveness of non-violent action, whereas originally all action was, uh, the only action that was, that was relevant was violent action. And the, our first epics, like the Iliad, are about violence. And now we're coming to the point where nonviolence, uh, twice in the last century, first with the civil rights movement in America, and then um, with the solidarity movement in Poland, thanks partly to Miłosz, um, thanks a very large part to Miłosz, Nonviolent action has been successful against violent forces. And that is, that is, I think, the very long-term future, even if we may be a millennium away from an ultimate victory of nonviolence over violence. That is the pattern of history that is, in a dialectical way, uh, continuous. And we can even talk about progress on that level. Right. In terms of thinking of the U.S. 
of this empire, I, I see the U.S. as essentially subsuming Western imperialism and yes. uh, taking management of it uh, after World War II, and that this is a centuries-long process, and that in terms of the dialectic of the behind this, you have the U.S. having generated its own opposition. Finally, I I, I think that this situation that exists at present is untenable and that it's, I don't know that there's much, I, th I think that the shock has to come before the culture can change. And I think what, what I am hoping above all else is that it involves a slow unwinding of the U.S. imperial system and that the U.S. loses its economic uh, exploitative hyperpower but control right. of the dollar, especially, uh, which which enables the U.S. to run roughshod over international law constantly, and those two things, which it does to protect the dollar, which allows it to continue to violate international law all the time, so it can protect the dollar, you know. And this is the this right. is the process, and that as the U.S. has generated opposition to this, and that's why I feel like this situation is so dangerous because I think that it's it's dawned on the U.S. how much peril the system is actually in. And if if we can somehow unwind this thing, at that point, it may, it may lead to a reckoning. And it's going to be a lot more pleasant <laughs> if, it, <laughs> if it's not a nuclear reckoning, because who's even going to be left to sort this out? But it, it, it seems like this empire... Is going to end before there is, and that the forces behind this are not going to come from us, unfortunately. Do you yeah. think that it's going to that it's possible for the forces within our own society to be really providing the impetus for this, or or is it going to take an external shock? Well, before I try to answer that question, I'd like to just look at the context of what America's doing now. I don't normally talk about American imperialism and American empire because I think that America was smart enough to uh, try to disguise what it was doing in a way that, that wouldn't look like an empire at all. What, what remains a constant is the exploitation of the poorer parts of the world to benefit the richer part of the world, and that really is almost the word I'd like to use is slavery, but uh, I can't use the word slavery because it, it meant chattel slavery, and chattel slavery was ended in America, one of the last countries to maintain it, and it ended in Brazil. But uh, the conditions that were so horrible haven't really changed. And we need a word that embraces the... Uh, the conditions of slavery, even if chattel slavery is not there. And that is the world we live in now, that we, America is living high, uh, living a very high standard of living because people in, the, in Africa and in Asia are facing starvation. And this is, this is obviously against the values that we uh, profess to support, but it, it, it is a real situation. Now, Britain, in, I, in my book, uh, The American Deep State, uh, which uh, 
it's sort of gone gone the way with my notion of the deep state. It's not taken seriously. But I point out how Britain, in the last stages of its empire, uh, was actively doing things. It, it had got so greedy uh, when they went into the Boer War, for example. It was a totally un inexcusable war. Um, these were the things which hastened the advent of World War One, which was the the end of the British Empire being number one in the world the way it had been. It took a, a couple of decades and another world war, but after that, Britain was finished and the British standard of living. It's never been what it used to be, but it's been better for Britain as a country uh, to start eroding its class structure and so on, which, they, which you know, there are good things that have happened, but they are poorer. America, if it can, it has been doing recently things which um, have already, I think, weakened the American dominance. We're losing hold of, of our command over Europe because uh, what we've been doing to support the Ukraine um, has uh, vastly increased the economic problems of Europe. They've been dependent on Russian uh, natural gas, and well, I don't want to get into the details here, but uh, they, I, you know, NATO is barely hanging on. They, they, it, they almost uh, failed to come up with this answer of coming more tanks for Ukraine, which I think was the wrong answer. Uh, but uh, if they realize it is the wrong answer, that it may be the end of NATO. I, I, America's command over the world is it's not gone by any means, but it, neither it is anything like as secure as it was a generation or two generations ago. And I have to say, that's probably a good thing. Even though, you know, I, um, it's harder for me to live. It's the dollar as going through the problems it's going through. But yes, we, it'll be a better world if it's a weaker America, and we somehow, one way or another, have to get America to accept that, either from within by politics, which I doubt, or uh, from without by politics, which may make things worse, or ultimately by increasing the intercultural contacts of people all over the world. You, you, you know that there are these little sessions of atomic scientists in uh, Nova Scotia, which was outside of government altogether, and they came up with solutions to the nuclear arms race, which were eventually adopted. That kind of cooperation on the non-governmental level between people is certainly something that has to happen and is happening and uh, is more hopeful, I think, than, than uh, negotiation between states which can profit. After people have come up with common sense solutions, then government can listen to them. Governments just don't initiate the common sense solutions themselves. They have to get them from somewhere else. Well, I appreciate the optimism there, and I, I think when it comes down to it, I'm ultimately an optimist 
even if I'm covering talking about very grim material, because if I didn't think it was there was some value in uh, exploring this material, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bother. Uh, as someone who has looked at, to, at at your work over decades, and we've done this oral history project that I maybe we can resume here uh, in a couple months or so. Uh, it, your work has been really inspirational in terms of, it, it, in many ways, empirically, it's very useful. And theoretically, also as a social scientist, it was u- very useful for me as I did my own uh, doctoral work and such. Uh, but also understanding how you have been able to look at these materials, which are not which are just dis, which are uh, disheartening at times, and they also huh. lead you to realize how powerless we are, and yet you the, the 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 bearing witness to this has been you were compelled to do it. It was a calling of sorts, I think, and I think we're yes. all the better for it. And so I'm really grateful to uh, that you've been able to produce the work you've produced in your life and uh, to be able to talk to you today. Well, I, if I could say. Um, I want to do so much I want to say. First of all, uh, my optimism, I, I'm going to be quite candid. I'm an optimist four days of the week, and I'm a pessimist three days of the week. And I suspect that you may have the same uh, com- competing things in yourself. And if you do, that's healthy. I think for us to be overly committed to one point of view is one of the things that's wrong with our culture at present. That. Um, and also, I want to say that, you know, I'm not alone, you're not alone. They, the natural thing, I think, for uh, human beings is to want to make things to be better, and then some of us get corrupted into a career where we end up uh, doing the opposite of what we originally wanted. And we have to make sure that the people who hold to the values that I think are basic human values, um, <clears throat> that we increase in number, which we are, and uh, become more and more powerful, which is what's happening, and that this happens in time to avoid a nuclear disaster, which would be the wrong way to have the disruption to lead us into a significant new phase of cultural development. Well, Peter Dale Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Aaron. I'm very grateful. Ben, you are explicitly Marxist. I myself am sort of agnostic on on these issues. And by that, I mean that I don't have a creed that uh, or perspective that includes like one and only one kind of uh, correct set of institutions on, or dealing with private property and the role of markets or whatever. I'm agnostic in some areas. Uh, so if anyone cares, uh, I'd say I'm a historical materialist, but not a Marxist. If being a Marxist entails accepting a historical teleology that has and will continue to play out, uh, I don't know. I can't predict that. Uh, I'm happy to say that I'm a socialist and not a capitalist, meaning that I believe that capital should be subordinated to the interests of human society, not vice versa, as the capitalists believe, even though they won't typically say it. That's uh, that's what they mean in in essence. Uh, As a Marxist yourself, Ben, how and why do you find 
Peter's work so valuable given that he has never framed his scholarship in a conventionally Marxist way. Um, no, I, I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and there's actually a great um, book review that uh, a guy named Patrick Higgins uh, did of the of the Road to 9-11 for um, We All Days Liberated Text. And I think people should check that out for a, a good long answer to this. It's written by an academic and it's very well done. But I think for my own part, um, I think that a huge part of, of Marxist analysis of politics per se is looking at the state and looking at the role of the state in society and looking at uh, specifically who controls the state, namely the, the bourgeois class, right? And it's easy enough to look at the surface elements of the state. We can look at the institutions of the Congress and the, and the courts uh, and the presidency. And you certainly would not say that those public aspects of the state have been exactly friendly uh, to the working class, uh, certainly not the American working class and, and certainly not the global working class. Um, but something that very frequently uh, evades analysis simply because it is so hidden and concealed from us is the deep state. Those elements of the state that act in a way uh, to, as, as Professor Scott says, uh, consciously avoid accountability. Um, and the the I think that the ignorance of those aspects of the state is not a, a necessarily or shouldn't be a conscious uh, choice on our part. I think historically it's just been because we can't know what the CIA has been doing. We can't know what uh, these uh, sort of non-state actors that that sort of uh, work in these interstitial areas have been up to. Uh, we we can't look and, and see the relationship between the mob and the government. Um, but somebody like Professor Scott, his work uh, gives us many of the answers to those questions by going in and uh, identifying those facts that are very often suppressed by mainstream academia or the or the press, um, and then developing some some theories about what these hidden facts mean, and giving us a much clearer picture, uh, his, historical picture about what's going on. Um, so I think if we if we ignore those things. Uh, in some sort of deference to uh, the academy or mainstream political science accounts of, of how the state operates. Uh, we really do, do ourselves a disservice if we want to understand uh, what is the nature of, of the class war that's being carried out against the global working class and peasantry. Uh, we have to understand that these capitalists have tools at their disposal that they hide from us. They take actions uh, that they blame on other other forces or other other uh, powers, and uh, it behooves us to to study those things uh, and put them in their proper place and not um, not con not consider them uh, to be off limits just because that's what the uh, mainstream uh, academy does or or what the press does. And I think um, there are many many people working in this space, but I think that Professor Scott was really one of the originals. And I think if you go and look. Um, at some of his work around the Vietnam War, like if you look at the original version of the war conspiracy and compare that to what um, some Marxist writers like Harry Magdoff were writing about imperialism at the same time, in a lot of respects, they're getting at the same, the same questions just from different angles. And I think they're very complementary. So I think, um, I think Marxists uh, ought to read his work and, and the work uh, of those he inspired. Why do you think that so many avowed Marxists in the U.S. often aggressively defend the bourgeois state's criminal clandestine apparatus? I mean, for example, 
Fidel Castro knew immediately what happened to JFK because he had a a, a messenger from JFK talking about, you know, yeah. basically peace with Cuba at the time that he got the news. And then he said, oh, this is a disaster. Everything has changed. So Fidel Castro, he has some Marxist credentials that I, I think exceed most of the Tweedy, uh, you know, professor Marxists in the United States. And he knew what happened. These American leftists think that's just sentimental, liberal, boomer nostalgia. Like they want to pedantically school Castro on the dialectic or something. Um, what's What do you think is up with this? I think it's interesting. I think, I think um, a lot of it, certainly from left-wing or avowed left-wing scholars in the academy is just that there's a pretty clearly delineated boundaries about what you can talk about and what you can't if you want to uh, get on the tenure track and and have a have a life as a professor you know fairly stable middle class life as a professor you cannot talk about the JFK assassination you certainly can't talk about 911 those those things are sort of off limits even even getting into um, more widely acknowledged things such as the you know CIA's adventures overseas and the various overthrows and assassinations that the U.S. government carried out and the CIA carried out over the decades, even those topics can get you into hot water. So I I can understand. Uh, I mean, I don't agree with it, but I can understand why those people would would do it. Um, I think for for many others, I think that um, you know your characterization of uh, of uh, you know the the JFK assassination theory, that sort of liberal boomer nostalgia. Certainly, there is a lot of that, right? And I think um, I think that you know people can become very sensitive to uh, if I endorse this, am I am I throwing in my lot with the with either the Oliver Stones of the world, who some don't don't hold in high regard, or the Alex Joneses of the world, who some don't hold in high regard, to say the least. So I think that. Um, I, you know, I think rather than uh, looking and seeing what should I believe based on what what uh, what are the what are the other people who believe it and do I align with them? I think it, it behooves us to just follow the facts and uh, take them where they lead us, uh, rather than concern ourselves with with how it makes us look. Uh, certainly, I think that um, one element of this is a is a little bit of uh, maybe simplistic analysis, right? You don't have to believe that uh, that JFK was a communist. Uh, although the Birchers did think that, but you don't have to think that JFK was a communist. They also thought Nelson Rockefeller was a communist, just for the record. So, oh sure, I mean, and Dick Cheney and Donald Roosevelt thought Kissinger was a communist, right? So, but you don't you don't have to you don't have to believe that uh, to understand the reasons why um, certain elements of of the American bourgeoisie would want him killed. Uh, and I think a lot of I think a, a a lot of this becomes clearer when you see that. A lot of what Professor Scott and, and others who have followed on uh, are analyzing is is really uh, intra-class fights, which have serious implications for the rest of us. Um, you know, it doesn't concern us, and there's not a whole lot in a certain sense. It doesn't concern us, and there's not a whole lot that we can do about it. Uh, but nonetheless, it has great implications for us and for the entire world. I mean, uh, you know, you don't want to get into counterfactuals, but if you take Indonesia for example, I don't think that Kennedy had in mind that. Um, millions of of indonesian communists and uh would would be massacred right that was not on his mind when he was killed it was very much on the minds of of many of the people who were responsible for killing him um so i think there there are clearly examples where um there were differences in the american ruling class 
about precisely the the, the mechanism by which the uh, the the newly liberated areas, you know, Indonesia and Vietnam, et cetera, the the different ways that they were going to be exploited. There were some who were the farthest right, most aggressive hawks who wanted to massacre again in the case of Indonesia, millions of people, or start a massive war in in uh, Vietnam. And there were others who took a softer approach, and um, you know, capitalism and imperialism don't have room for that softer approach. So those people had to go. And understanding the mechanics of how that happened, um, which Professor Scott has has amply documented, uh, I think is important for us to know, uh, particularly as we as we continue to have political struggles ongoing. You know, what will um, what will some of the soft left? I mean, we've seen, for instance, what Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn have faced, and and um, as as the left hopefully continues to to challenge uh, at the various levels, uh, including the parliamentary and and you know capital P politics level, uh, what will be the challenges and, and things that we'll be met with. And I think looking back on this history can give us give us some indications of that. So we at least know what we're up against and don't go into it uh, naively. You know, Aaron, you you yourself, you've taken Peter's scholarship and his his deep politics approach to history to serve as foundations for your work and, and for your book, American Exception. Uh, you know, how would you characterize? I know it's difficult to do, but at least could you give us sort of the, the beginnings of a characterization of, of Peter Dale Scott's life and work? Well, as, as uh, you can appreciate, this is an impossible task to really do justice to. But I have been thinking about these these things, um, not just for this um, this tribute and fundraiser, but also just in terms of my own work and my own efforts to uh, grapple psychically with with the implications of all the, the the work that I've been doing and all the research that I've been able to put, to put together and try to write about and try to understand. I think that people on the left are, in this case, on the wrong track if they worry too much about whether someone like Peter is a liberal or a Marxist. Uh, in the process of of doing all this, I've been thinking about his work, as I said, and I want to suggest that perhaps he is best thought of as a dialectical Taoist. And uh, I know that's, that sounds a little nutty, so I, I want to try to substantiate this. I'm going to read a passage from Deep Politics, which he wrote in the early 90s. Um, and he was writing about the problems of people uh, who have looked at, you know, tried to look at the dark side of human history over the course of, you know, in particular Western civilization he's talking about it. So he writes... The defect here has not been that of rationality, but only of the historic ideologies put forward in reason's name. In my poetry, I take issue with the enlightenment contempt for poetry and religion. I propose that in the spirit of Dante or the Tao Te Ching, we should move instead toward a deeper enlightenment that respects the truth of darkness, the truths of darkness, as well as those of light. So I w have been lucky to teach um, East Asian history, uh, and I took some courses in college. But then teaching it at, a high, at the high school level for three years, a year-long course, uh, had me look at Taoism and Confucianism and Buddhism when I, left to my own devices, might not have uh, looked at it as deeply. And so um, it was what was fascinating to me was finding out that Peter had actually written translations of Tang Dynasty poetry from people like uh, Li Bo, uh, who Peter describes as like the first anti-war poet, because he's writing about 
you know, I think he's writing in the wake of the uh, An Lushan Rebellion and the destruction of uh, the capital city of Chang'an, I believe. And uh, he's lamenting uh, war uh, in, in, in poetry. And Peter wrote uh, an English version of that. And years before I, I knew that he had written this, I had actually used some of those same poems, not Peter's translation of them, but in my class. And so I, this was fascinating to me uh, because it was not what you always associated with Peter Del Scott, this East Asian uh, you know, philosophy. So I, I think of Peter in a way like a Taoist sage. And if you're in the US, the pop culture reference to that, which it isn't explicitly stated in the movies, but it's, you know, he ripped, uh, George Lucas ripped these people off from China, you know, more than a thousand years ago. Uh, it, the, the sort of metaphysics of Star Wars is a weird mix of Zen Buddhism, you know, the samurai ethos. And uh, Taoism and Yoda is like a Taoist sage who also, you know, has elements of Zen Buddhism and sort of the samurai's uh, focus on, you know, cultivating yourself. So uh, I, I consider Peter in a way like the archetypal Taoist sage character. There's this long tradition in Chinese cultural history of the sage who exiles himself to escape the corruption of a, a human civilization, someone who is uh, enlightened to the point that he he must detach from the sort of worldly corruption that uh, disgusts him uh, and dis and dis dismays him, so that he can clear his mind. Uh, not a, he's not a revolutionary. He's detached in a sense because he's profoundly ambivalent about civilization. So on the one hand, the Taoist sage and Peter, and really you know, all of us to a degree, we're the beneficiary of the culture and accumulated wisdom of civilization. Uh, on the one hand, these forces create wealth and power uh, that fuels decadence and corruption and violence and exploitation, but they also create the uh, parts of the culture that are edifying and helpful and, uh, and good material progress. And um, even uh, it's spiritual progress to a degree, which seems on the one hand, crazy to think of in our own society, which seems to be uh, really uh gripped in the by a worship of greed and materialism but uh you know uh, many it wasn't that long ago that like half of women or or around half of women died in childbirth for example so there there are or that we would torture christians and feed them to lions for our amusement i mean there's some progress that we can be happy about which is easy to lose sight of when you're looking at the outrages that still exist but it's this duality of human civilization that is, uh, I think, important to focus on. And this is, you can see this in, you know, in Peter's poetry and his writing, but also even if you look at the Taoist texts, um, the Tao Te Ching is the most famous one. And there's a there's one stanza in that where, that I think is just uh, a, a right on the nose and uh, eerily, uh, you know, on point. It, it reads, fish must not emerge from the deeps. The vital tools of a state must not be revealed. And so this is written in, you know, this is something that could apply to aspects of what Peter studies today, that, yeah. that the state and the, the civilization, the power structure always has these dark, these dark elements that um, are, are better left secret and that must be necessarily left secret by the regime. And in a way, it's sort of a, a warning of sorts. Of people not to 
to, to think that they can trifle with such things. Um, but then, of course, it's the Tao Te Ching. And so it's written in a very silly, kind of contradictory, playful way. And of course, there's many laments about the corruption of power and so on at the same time that they are saying this. So I, I think that captures uh, the sort of the, the duality that they are pointing to in these texts and that Peter has undergirding a lot of his work. There's, this, there's another passage in the Zhuangzi, which is the second of the two famous Taoist texts, where that I think applies probably to social scientists and historians as we've been discussing. Uh, and it reads, the sage is the sharpest tool of empire. He is not a means of bringing light to the empire. Um, and in this case, I, I think this doesn't mean necessarily a Taoist sage in the you know traditional uh, mythical sense of the you know the person who retreats. He means more. I believe this means more the scholar, the establishment scholar, the 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 regimes, the dynasties own court historians and so on. They are the sharpest tool of the empire. They're not a means of bringing light to the empire. And if they are going to bring light to the empire, it's going to be to the, the old regime. Like when the um, Han uh, dynasty wrote some very scurrilous uh, histories of the first emperor of the of China, Qin Shi Huangdi, um, and his mother, who was a, a lustful woman. And it's some of these stories are so wild that you wonder if the Han historians, they had to have been making them up. They're almost too crazy to be believed. <laughs> but beyond that, they're not going to bring light to their own empire. Um, so yin and, yin and yang, light and dark, the dialectic of history, there is a symmetry to these things. I believe that the recognition of these dynamics led Peter to... Uh, really go past and transcend his earlier study of that which is dark. He, ca he called this parapolitics uh, so that he could look more holistically at the forces that really animate the darkness. This is why his work transcends and surpasses the much more shallow work of many of the conspiracist types who embrace the parapolitics mantle, uh, even as Peter really left it behind and, and I think, uh, you know, moved onward and upward. Uh, so we need to, on some level, embrace detachment and enlightenment, uh, mindfulness, but not in the corporate, you know, um, new agey, Sam Harris kind of phony way, <laughs> uh, more like the Quakers, uh, who, among other things, bear witness to evil, even when they can't stop it, that somehow you have a moral, spiritual, intellectual obligation to bear witness to evil in the world uh, and and to act to at least bear witness to it, even if you can't stop it, and that that is somehow revelatory and necessary uh, for for your own humanity and for the good of humanity as a whole. So somehow, a broader enlightenment must take root, and I think Peter's work can be a part of this. It already is, and let's hope it's able to inform uh, this reckoning that the U.S. empire, like all empires, is going to have to face eventually. I think this process is already starting, but I think in these times, it's going to be more important to really find those uh, th those works that we can look to from the past and from people who were aware of these problems and they saw them coming uh, and tried to warn us, tried to bear witness to them, even when they couldn't stop them. I think that's the tradition that Peter represents, and I would like to represent that as well. And so this is why it's been a great honor to to be able to do this. 
Uh, ben, do you have any any last words here? Well, I was wondering if I could read a few stanzas from his poem, The Tao of 9-11, which I think covers a lot of these things very eloquently. Um, so I'm wondering if I could go through a, through a few of those. So uh, this is from this is from towards this is from towards the end of the Tao of 9/11, uh, which he wrote or it was published anyway in, in 2007. I'll, I'll, uh, these are non-consecutive, but I'll, they're they're very relevant, so I'll read them. Uh, I have not, in fact, been alone. There have always been strangers, some in scattered parts of this land or in countries unvisited. Others, though the great chain of the centuries, who without ever meeting, it is possible to trust. In the truth of yin, that is always gentle, like water flowing to the lowest places. The Tao, where the soft and gentle overcome the hard and strong, because truth, being that which is, can never be destroyed. Uncertain as always, whether this republic is past saving or whether some of us still tread the perilous path of the future, part of me just meditates on the new and more flourishing wildlife that is improving Point Reyes ten years after the Mount Vision fire. From the glories of the Tang Dynasty, I recall only one date, the year the usurper An Lushan drove both Wang Wei and Du Fu far from the corrupt court into the mountains, where for the first time they were free to write the only poems we remember. I think that that is perfect. Um, I will only add to that to say that it's I, you didn't tell me that you were going to read that, and um, I'm quite pleased that you did because when I went to go and meet Peter in person and interviewed him along with Daniel Ellsberg um, out at a small college in the Bay Area, I got to drive them around and uh, then later go to a poetry reading with Peter. And I drove back to his house later uh, to drop him off. And we had been talking about um, the Qin Dynasty and the destruction of the terracotta soldiers and his poem. Uh, that that's I believe it is the Tao of 9-11 where he, he mentions them in another mm -hmm. stanza. Yep. And as I was leaving to drop Peter off, this had been really a, a wonderful uh, and, uh, period of time. It was over two days. And as I went to drop him off and say goodbye, he gave me a couple copies of, of poetry books uh, that I did not already own. And he had uh, the book with which included the Tao of 9-11, and he read me, he said, here, I, I want to read this to you. And so he gave me an individual <laughs> poetry reading, which is the, I think the first and, and last of those that I have uh, ever been a party to. And <laughs> it was it, it was fantastic because I have heard him speak in many, many interviews and so on. And I felt like Peter was an old friend before I ever met him. And then he read me this uh, personalized, you know, gave me this personal reading of a, of a poem that I, I think is really profound and moving. And I believe that it included part of, part of that, what he read included what you, what you had read, what you just read. And I was, I was really touched by this and, and moved by it. And then he, he thanked me and, uh, we, we said that we would be in, we'd be in touch later. And he got out of the car. This would have, he would have been about 90, 91 or 92 at the time. So he was a little younger than he is now, but not much. And I, uh, I realized he, he, he said that, oh, you parked on the wrong side of the street. Uh, you, could, you could have pulled in the driveway. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should have done that. Let me do that. And then he said, no, no, it's fine. And then he just jumped out of the car. 
uh, and this street is kind of busy. And I was like, I was so touched by this, kind of choked up even if I'm going to be honest. But it was just, I was watching him and I looked behind me and then I, I looked in the mirror. I saw him look both ways, this 90 year old guy, and then quickly shuffle across the street. Like, you know, I don't want to say shuffle, shuffle, but like he 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 sort of walks quickly. He doesn't run because <laughs> you don't really run at 90. I don't even really like running that much at this age. Uh, but he, he goes across and I, I thought it occurred to me I was so touched by this. At the same time, I thought, oh, my God, if he gets hit by a car and I, I'll be responsible for this <laughs> and I, that will be such bad karma. I don't even know what I could ever do to live it down. Happily, <laughs> he did make it across and I, I have the books and I have that memory and uh, I, I will always uh, I'll cherish that that forever. So I'm really that's that's quite amazing that you read uh, from that. Uh, and surprised me with that today because it's uh it that has deep meaning for me on on many levels that I uh, can only try to express here. Yeah, well, I think it's worth I think it's worth reading. Everybody should check out that poem. You can you can find it online. Absolutely, and we also have uh, a sessions of him reading um, coming to Jakarta, which we plan to make episodes of in the future. So, uh, along with the oral history series that we have uh, at the American Exception podcast, which we hope to resume here shortly now that he's finishing up his books. And uh, we haven't been really trying to, uh, you know, hammer on this throughout this whole production, but uh, that please, if you can uh, support this GoFundMe campaign, uh, I, I really would be grateful if you were able to do so uh, because we, uh, we want to really honor uh, a Peter and help Peter. Uh, whose work has done so much to illuminate things for people who really care about war and peace uh, and the fate, let's be honest, of human civilization uh, under this this current empire that really imperils human existence uh, when it comes down to it with with this nuclear doomsday machine. Uh, and so this is this is a, a, a one of the best people that you could support, in my opinion. Yeah, amen to that. I want to thank David Talbot, James Galbraith, Daniel Ellsberg, Joshua Oppenheimer, John Kiriakou, Liz Franchek, Brace Belden, Noah Colwin, Oliver Stone, and guest co-host Ben Howard. I'd also like to thank our two producers, Dana Chavaria and Seamus McGinnis, as well as Mock Orange for providing the music. Lastly, I want to thank all of the American Exception subscribers on Patreon. Because of your support, I was able to spend a lot of time putting this thing together to help my friend, mentor, and co-author, Peter Dale Scott. If you are not a subscriber, please consider joining us at patreon.com slash American Exception. Again, and lastly, please do support this GoFundMe campaign for Peter through the link or the QR code. Peter Dale Scott deserves our support for a life spent minding the darkness.